Hi, I'm Mark Lentz, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome back to the POMEPS Middle East Books Podcast, our series of conversations with authors with books in the field. Joining us today is Selva Ismail. She's a professor of politics at SOAS in London, and she's the author of the book, The Rule of Violence, Subjectivity, Memory, and Government in Syria, which was published by Cambridge University Press. Uh, Selva, thanks for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. I'm looking forward to our uh, conversation. Thank you. So tell, tell me about uh, the book a little bit. Uh, what, what was the major uh, uh, goal that you had when you were trying to write this book? What do you think the main contribution to our understanding of Syria is from the book? Well, the main question was really to understand uh, the centrality of violence to the Assad regime. Uh, we all know that the regime deployed violence on a massive scale, um, not just in the uprising, but previously um, in, you know, during the period that was known as the Hama events, uh, you know, beginning in the late 1970s and lasting until 1982. And then also we know that imprisonment and various forms of you know, practices of violence were kind of widespread. So both spectacular and I would say also routine violence, violence in the everyday. And yet this both spectacular violence and routine violence was not really studied closely. Um, and particularly it was not approached with a perspective of understanding what it was achieving or accomplishing for the regime. Why, what were the rationalities of this violence? What was this thinking about this uh, um, violence? And it was also to kind of expand our perspective on violence beyond seeing violence as, as purely repressive and thinking that it must be functioning, it must do something. Um, and, um, and I wanted to understand what it did to the Syrian polity, Syrian society, how it shaped Syrians as political subjects, as citizens, uh, their understanding of themselves, each other, and um, their relation to the regime. Um, so th these were some of the questions that emerged for me while I, you know, um, mm -hmm. when I started doing field work in Syria. I didn't really begin with a kind of a project on political violence in Syria. I wanted to understand more about the, re the Assad regime or the Ba'athist regime's forms of government in the everyday, and particularly, you know, how the regime transformed. The course of my early work, which was in the early 2000s, that I started to see that actually um, violence was central to understanding anything about Syrian politics and society. And that's what that was one of the things which really comes out of the book and which really struck me is just the way that we all know that violence is central to the way the regime functions. And yet I think a lot of the literature on Syria hasn't necessarily foregrounded it the way that, that your book does uh, so well. And I like the way that you make violence not just uh, an exogenous thing, but it's a core part of governance in, in the, way you've, the way you've described it in the book. Yes, I mean, we, we cannot look at this violence as being either gratuitous or um, uh, just repressive or, or, or just to punish. But actually, I think for me, uh, I kind of digging um, deeper was to see what, in what way it was productive uh, mm -hmm. and essential to the workings of the regime. Uh, in, it, it, in, in what way it communicated certain messages and signaled, you know, the, what the terms of rule are for the Syrian citizens. Uh, so just uh, and when we look at two of the apparatuses of violence, which I kind of focus on um, uh, when looking at the spectacular violence of the regime, and these are the prison or the um, internment camp, al-Mu'taqal, mm -hmm. 
uh, and uh, the massacre. We see that you know these were kind of central and mechanisms or apparatuses of government in the sense that they conveyed messages, but they also formed citizens' understanding of um, the how the regime would respond to any kind of opposition uh, or questioning of its um, dominance, um, and how it aimed to structure society in the sense that basic to the working of the regime was a kind of a, a, the driving of a division or a line of division through society. You are either with it or against it. There wasn't in between. There were loyalists or oppositionists. And oppositionists were going to be treated uh, through such practices of violence like either they would be imprisoned or they would be killed and, and, and they would be killing on a kind of a massive scale. So when you think about Hama, for example, and the level of destruction of the city and the level of violence, the killing of you know, upwards of somewhere between maybe 10,000 to 40,000 people. Um, we don't really have uh, clear-cut, you know, figures, but there are estimates. Um, this could not be just motivated by the regime is countering the Islamist insurgency, you know, which emerged in Hama in the late 70s uh, and early 90s by this group, Atali uh, al-Muqatila, the, com the um, uh, combatant vanguard, uh, which had some kind of ambiguous uh, ties to the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, it it, there were maybe 200, maybe 300, you know, there are estimates maximum of a thousand uh, in Hama and, and previously in Aleppo. It, 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 the level of violence that was mounted was really against an entire population to discipline it and um, to teach lessons and inscribe memories uh, in the landscape on the bodies of the population. And, it, and in fact, that's exactly what the Hama violence uh, achieved. It produced a temp, what I would call a template or a format for government. Um, Syrians understood what lay in, in wait for them should they uh, uh, challenge the regime or question it. So there so was you know, kind of... So well, one of the things which is so interesting, though, is you have the combination of the enforced public silence about the violence, while at the same time having it be so deeply constitutive of how Syrians understand the, the way the state will respond. And I, I thought you had a very interesting way of, of talking about that, about how the silence and the memory uh, interact with each other. Yes. Um, well, Mm, discussion of Hama uh, or the events of Hama and the level of violence uh, were kind of very muted. There may have been in private homes in Hama some references, you know, kind of veiled references to what happened to the, those events um, uh, in families and, and coded uh, uh, references. But in the wider population and, and without knowledge of these codes, you would think that Hama was not talked about. And there was this silence. Um, but at the same time, um, the memory was inscribed, as I said, in the landscape. So the kind of the destruction of the historical quarters of the city were uh, something that was known to the residents of the city mm -hmm. and beyond. Uh, and that was recalled through um, different kinds of practices, especially uh, people remembered what there were, were uh, uh, used to be in those spaces that were erased, um, but also through narratives in which there were these codes of 
um, in, uh, about the events, you know, so for example, you know, references to, you know, the bread of the events, uh, because this was the only certain kind of bread that was only available during that time. Um, but then also the silence memory was expressed in the feeling, uh, feelings of kind of foreboding and anticipation of mm -hmm. uh, a repeat of that violence. So although the, there was not a reference to or recall of those events within the wider population, but there was a sense of what an understanding of what the regime would do should it be challenged. And we see this kind of fear of the repeat of Hama uh, expressed in artistic works that kind of make references to, that had these ap apocalyptic motifs, you know, so you think of the work of someone like Amar Amir Alai, you know, Deluge in the Country of the Bath, and an anticipation of a flood, of, of floods, you know, uh, because of the collapse of dams and so on. And, and these motifs you would, see, you would find in, in films and in writings. Um, but then during the uprising, they kind of also, uh, this um, anticipation of the recurrence and repeat of Hama becomes more, is, is voiced in saying that the regime would do Hama again, you know, because uh, it has been challenged. Um, and, and that's when we realized that actually um, this fear of a repeat of Hama was there all along. And uh, there was always a kind of a, this preoccupation in artistic works and films like Osama Muhammad or in writing by author like Mother uh, Batra Halloum, that there would be a recurrence or return to some kind of a um, spectacular violence, which was understood as either an expression of something primitive um uh relating to you know the predominance of kin relations or uh be relating to the absence of a kind of the disintegration of culture and its debasement uh, these were different ways of trying to understand what was behind the spectacular violence and um how it could be combated or stalled or stopped Let's um let's move away from the spectacular violence for a moment because the second uh, major site of violence that you talk about a lot and in very interesting ways is the prisons and and the way that um, not just the the people in the prisons experience it but the way this creates the subjectivity that you describe. Um, tell us more about kind of how you analyze that prison environment and the role that it played in Baathist governance. Well, I looked at the memoirs and diaries and also some fictionalized accounts of what was going on in prison in the everyday. And, um, you know, ba basic to the practices of the guards and uh, the off security officers during interrogation and then during the imprisonment were kind of, it was a, sp a spectrum of violent practices that ranged from, you know, beating, slapping, pushing around, um, to uh, um, demean, you know, or kind of forms of demeaning and diminishing um, the prisoners and um, trying to kind of undo their sense of self through um, practices that were debasing and degrading. Um, uh, for example, very common was to make uh, prisoners eat uh, soiled food. Um, to kind of um, so soiled with either urine or vermin or sewage water, uh, or even sometimes for forcing them to uh, drink uh, uh, again um, soiled uh, uh, water and so on. 
uh, also one of the uh, common practice was um, what I call the assault of spit, you know, having prisoners swallow somebody else's spit or spit on one another or spitting on uh, or guards spitting on them. So you think that this is cruel and may, may appear irrational, but kind of you have to look at what it does to the political subject, to this political prisoner in terms of their own sense of self, their ability to kind of maintain sense of their humanity, self-respect. Um, and looking at the diaries, we see and the accounts of you know, what this did to the political prisoners, we see that it was undermining uh, their sense of self. And uh, one of the political prisoners, Ratib Shabu, talks about, you know, kind of, an anticipation of memories of cowardice, remembering that you know at uh, what they under at the the experiences and the feeling of not being able to stand up for yourself or for fellow uh, political prisoners who you know uh, they were were ex you could hear them being tortured uh, and being exposed to this violence and not being able to do anything about it and in fact perhaps even having momentary feeling of relief that you're not the subject of this violence. So and this is not really different than, you know, uh, accounts that we find coming from other, you know, cases of extreme violence, uh, right. like, for example, from Germany, uh, as well, you know, in the internment camp. Um, you know, the, one of the, um, there was reference to, you know, memories of cowardice coming out of memories of, you know, political prisoners uh, or internment. You know, uh, uh, camp survivors uh, remembering, you know, the fear and, and, and not really being able to do anything. And then these memories, um, which kind of survive and, and shape who you are later on, you know, these memories of, um, well, which was coined as memories of cowardice. Um, so that kind of gives us a sense that there is a political objective to this, which is to undo the political subjectivities of these um, prisoners so they cannot really dissent. And yeah, as evidence of this, we find that actually um, there was a, a kind of recurrence of these campaigns to make the political prisoners not only renounce their uh, political commitments and allegiance to particular uh, political parties, but also to actually completely reverse themselves and pronounce their allegiance to Hafez al-Assad, for example, or later on now to Bashar al-Assad. So a complete overturning of the subject. So how do you arrive at this overturning of the political subjectivity? I think that these practices are precisely what uh, were the kind of the mechanisms or the ways through which uh, the regime aimed to do that. So whether the actual guard was aware of this objective or not, it's, it's, I think, not central. We have to understand that the regime had its own rationality of how it treated dissidents. Um, and it approached this some as, had, as, as kind of subjects that had to be eliminated completely because there was no hope of, over, uh, of changing them. And others who, you know, possibly through such practices, would overturn themselves and um, pronounce their allegiance to the regime. And then you trace that through. So beyond the spectacular violence and the prisons, then you also talk about these, these everyday practices of subjugation and routine violence and you know, police at checkpoints, in the schools, 
um, kind of showing how the violence permeates almost every aspect of, um, of, kind of the lived experience of the citizen. Yeah, I, and I kind of find that in the accounts of everyday life, there was, you could um, kind of find resonance between what ordinary citizens experienced under Hafez al-Assad and, and to some extent, despite the so-called political opening in the early years of Bashar al-Assad's rule, that it, what they experienced in the everyday was not um, terribly different than uh, some of the experiences of imprisonment. So, for example, you know, we know that the security services were present in, uh, in, in, in many aspects of everyday life, uh, very basic um, uh, uh, types of work, for example, required uh, security clearance and required reporting to the security services, very mundane kinds of activities, whether it was in, you know, renting um, housing or uh, opening a kiosk, on, uh, mm -hmm. vending kiosk or working as an ambulance photographer or babysitter and so on. All of these required reporting to the security services and exposed one to becoming an agent of the security service, what they call, what Syrians call Zalamit al-Am, which became kind of like a, this phantom political subjectiv subjectivity or political subject. You anticipated that your next door neighbor, your this, the mate in school or uh, the teacher or uh, someone on the street that you may kind of have a random encounter with could be a, an agent of the security service. And that kind of created an atmosphere of uh, mistrust and fear and a sense of exposure. Um, but then also the security services were more visibly present in uh, the kiosks uh, uh, and checkpoints and, uh, and treated citizens uh, with um, disdain and uh, sometimes with violence. And, and Syrians spoke of a feeling of abjection uh, as a result of such encounters, you know, what they called Zul, uh, just kind of trying to avoid passing by a security kiosk uh, in the, an everyday crossing a street or walking on a sidewalk, actually generated this feeling of debasement and was you know a uh, reason for some people to feel like they couldn't live any longer in that country and they had to leave for example um so and and, and again the presence of the security services uh, you know extended to schools uh, through various figures in the schooling and i talk about this you know uh, not just teachers but military trainers and uh, the expectations of you know um, that there would be informants uh, in various institutions, whether mm -hmm. it's in schooling, universities, and through the Ba'ath Party's uh, auxiliary organs, uh, the student unions, the pioneer organization, and so on. So the permeation of this kind of system of surveillance and monitoring uh, and the physical and visible presence of security service was a, um, were different forms of um, um, or, or different institutions of violence and practices of violence that Syrians encountered in the everyday, uh, and and uh, you know they may vary in their intensity, but their presence was uh, an experience of them was a continuous reminder of you know the form of government that they were under and the constraints on the, um, that they experienced in, in their everyday life. 
Now, the, the book is obviously not primarily about the 2011 uprising and afterwards, but I mean, how exactly, you know, do you think it was that Syrian, so many Syrians were able to overcome all of this cultivated fear and debasement and, 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 and take the kind of uh, oppositional stance that they took in 2011? How, do, how did they overcome that fear? I think there were different um, factors. I don't think there is a kind of a simple answer to this, and we we probably have also only partial explanations because we still need to kind of do uh, deeper um, and, and wider studies of uh, the various uh, movements of opposition or the uh, act, you know, activist movements uh, that were involved in in the uprising, but. I, I think there are a number of factors that kind of can help us understand. One was uh, the, the same fear that would have stopped people from acting was also motivating their engagement. So the fear of a repeat of Hama um, was uh, at the time when this is visible, whereby people actually could see the violence that was being visited on the first area where, you know, there was the beginning of the uprising against the regime in Dara'a. You know, the fear that Dara'a would actually be another Hama, would experience, you know, would have the Hama experience, motivated people to rise up in defense of, you know, their fellow citizens and, and uh, to speak against you know, the possible brutalization and victimization and so on. So a sense of responsibility. So the same fear, I think, also motivated engagement. You know, they didn't want that repeat and they hoped that they could kind of, you know, stall it. So remember that, that at the beginning, they weren't asking for bringing down the regime. They were asking for reform. They were asking for the release of political prisoners. Um, they were asking... Um, uh, you know, for the suspension of Article 8 uh, that guaranteed the dominance of the Ba'ath Party over political life. But with the regime's kind of use of extensive violence against Dara and other areas where there was mobilization, um, then there, there was an expansion of the demand for the fall of the regime. There is another element, of course, which is, you know, the hope that was you know, grew out of uh, seeing what was going on in Egypt and in Tunisia, and that perhaps um, this was an opportunity that they had, to, that Syrians had to seize, um, you know, the, the, uh, in trying to bring about a change in the form of government and rule. I remember I was in Syria at the time and I had discussion with some of the young activists and, you know, about how, um, the fact that you know, they didn't really have the, the kind of infrastructure that, let's say, Egyptians or Syrians had in terms of an associational life and, and uh, a, a much more open press and so on. But they felt like this was an opportunity that they had to seize and uh, they were taking their chances and risking. And, and I don't think, even though uh, Syrians understood how violent the regime was, I think for the younger generation, which was kind of very active, in the coordination and organization of the uprising, perhaps they didn't have that uh, immediate memory uh, of the events of Hama and um, the extreme violence of the regime. So there, there may have been also a generational dimension to this, which kind of, I think, needs to be studied uh, more closely. 
So you, towards the end of the book, you talk about several of the uh, more notorious of the massacres that took place during the war and the narrative battles around them. I, I was curious, uh, well, one of the really distinctive features of the, of the Syrian civil war was the circulation of all of these videos and the production of so much of this content, uh, including uh, really graphic videos showing violence by the regime or by the opposition. Do you think that like the public presentation of these videos, that helped the regime or helped the opposition? How did that play out when, hmm? when this- I'm sorry? How did it play out, do you think, when you have this, the videos of extreme violence um, being circulated publicly uh, by the opposition or over regime media, um, having all of this now on the surface being publicly displayed. Well, I, you know, I, when I looked at some of the um, examples of massacres um, that took place in the first few years of the uprising, and they were predominantly committed by the regime and its allies, the, so the paramilitary groups like the National Defense Forces or the Shabiha and so on. Um, one, a common theme that emerges and that I discuss in the book is this kind of contention of uh, over who is responsible for uh, the, uh, committing these uh, atrocities. Um, you know, the, the, the propensity of the regime to deny uh, responsibility, even when actually you do have um, documentary evidence, including um, uh, that show um, uh, regime allies and members of the um, of the national defense forces in on videos uh, um, present at the sites where these acts are committed and uh, and and acknowledging that they've committed the um, um, you know the ki killings uh, as happened in for example with the killings in Albeda uh, in in Benyes. Um and yet there there is this denial. Uh, of responsibility on, on one hand. So this is a kind of one of the things that emerges, which is the um, um, the, the ambiguity of uh, who's killing whom, which happens in large scale conflicts usually. But I think also, you know, this seems to me to be a strategy of the regime uh, to kind of create as, as a modus operandi for it in terms of uh, controlling the narrative, whereby, you know, it's possible for the loyalists um, who are not in themselves directly engaged in violence to believe that actually it's the opposition, it's the Islamist, it's this kind of, um, um, whether it is ISIS at later on or the Muslim Brotherhood or whatever, who are um, responsible for this violence. So I... I think the circulation of these kind of videos contribute to um, the, the sense of bewilderment that ordinary citizens have about who's responsible for this kind of violence. And because there are also, I mean, there are narratives that go uh, along with uh, the videos, you know, so it's not... Um, uh, there are different stories that are circulated both by the regime and the opposition, and, and, and it's it's ordinary citizens or Syrians uh, are left, you know, kind of in fear and bewilderment. And that's, I think, part of this regime of violence or um, the, the regime's mode of operation and managing this violence. Uh, but there is a second 
uh, dimension to this, which I discussed with, uh, in the book. Uh, and that is the extreme violence that is used, which tends to be body-centered. I mean, mm -hmm. it's not just a question of killing the enemies, uh, whether it is the regime or later on some of the elements of the opposition. The violence uh, tends to include uh, acts of disfigurement um, and uh, extreme violence on the, you know, kind of body-centered body violence. And that raises a question about what is the purpose of this uh, um, um, body-centered violence. And I, my, you know, what I offer as a by way of explanation is to say that actually, you know, um, this is that horror uh, is 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 the kind of a another dimension of this violence. Um, the horror, um, which we associate, of course, you know, with more of uh, you know with with films or certain kinds of writings, but in fact, of course, you know, particular practices of violence also are car carried out in what I would call a horror mode, mm. uh, center on. Um, this disfigurement of the body, this uh, dismemberment, and and so on, and we know that that kind of has a, a uh, very deep impact on um, the human psyche. Um, uh, it kind of speaks to our deepest fears about the integrity of our bodies, um, and and so um, this is a particular particular uh, dimension of the violence that we see in Syria. I mean, Syria is not the only case, but uh, we've seen it in other uh, kinds of conflicts uh, as well. Uh, but it, we must treat that kind of violence um, as, you know, uh, communicating and performing uh, and, and producing uh, certain kinds of politics uh, uh, and, and and understandings of the political. Well, this is this has been so interesting. I think this this book really is one of the most um, sophisticated and challenging uh, treatments of violence in um, not just in Syria but in kind of the the study of Middle East politics in general. Um, we've been speaking with uh, Selwa Ismail uh, of SOAS about her outstanding book, uh, The Rule of Violence: Subjectivity, Memory, and Government in Syria. Selwa, thank you so much. Well, thank you very much. I very much enjoyed it, Mark.